Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, February 20th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Navalny's body is reportedly found bruised in an Arctic morgue. Tribal violence kills at least 26 in Papua New Guinea. Ursula von der Leyen seeks another term leading the European Commission. Wisconsin approves new legislative maps. China offers to back Hungary in security matters. Israel warns of an assault on Rafah by Ramadan. Russia intensifies attacks on Ukraine. The U.S. strikes more targets in Yemen. The Falkland Islands dispute causes concern for marine life. Trump launches a $400 sneaker line. And the NBA All-Star Game sets a historic scoring milestone. Our top story, Navalny's body is found bruised in an Arctic morgue. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, New York Post, The Telegraph, Novaya Gazeta, and Reuters. Russian opposition media Novaya Gazeta Europe has reported, quoting an unidentified paramedic, that the body of recently deceased Alexei Navalny had bruises on the head and chest when he was allegedly brought to the Salicard District Clinical Hospital for an autopsy. According to the self-described experienced paramedic, these injuries would be consistent with those from attempts to hold down a convulsing individual as well as from an indirect cardiac massage. Russia's Federal Penitentiary Service announced on Friday that Navalny had died in a penal colony after feeling sick and fainting after a walk, adding that medics promptly arrived to revive him but failed. The outlet claimed that Navalny's mother and her lawyers were denied access to the morgue on Monday, with staff refusing to confirm whether Navalny's body was there. Some reports suggest that his corpse was transferred from a morgue in Labatnangi to Salicard on Saturday. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov called Western accusations against Vladimir Putin and his government rabid and totally inadmissible, as a probe is underway and no information has been released so far. Meanwhile, EU foreign ministers issued a joint statement Monday after meeting with his widow, Yulia Navalnaya, in Brussels, calling for an independent international probe and claiming that Putin and other Russian authorities are ultimately responsible for Navalny's death. Thanks, Scott, for presenting the facts. The round of spins will begin with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Ukraine Forum. As more information emerges, the world will move from assuming this was an assassination to knowing it was. Putin, who chose to commit this murder around the time of the NATO Security Conference, has a long history of destroying all opposition. He won't be stopped until someone in his own orbit or from outside of Russia decides to rid the world of his dictatorial regime. And countering that with a pro-Russian narrative from RT. The West has been pushing unproven propaganda about Navalny since the so-called assassination attempt in 2020. Now, with their self-proclaimed opposition leader having died of unknown causes, the anti-Russia powers that be will again spread unfounded rhetoric and accusations. The autopsy hasn't even been conducted, and Western powers are already drawing fallacious conclusions. And finally, the nerd narrative coming from Metaculus. It says there's a 50% chance that Vladimir Putin will cease to hold the office of president of Russia by December of 2028. Tragic news from Papua New Guinea as tribal violence kills at least 26. The facts are agreed upon by The Guardian, BBC News, Nikkei Asia, Sky News, RNZ, and NPR Online News. 
As many as 26 people were killed during an ambush in the Enga province in the northern highlands of Papua New Guinea on Sunday. Authorities had initially announced that at least 64 people had died from the fighting, then corrected the figure. But the incident is still believed to be the worst massacre in the country's recent history. The deceased bodies were reportedly seen being loaded onto a truck. Royal Papua New Guinea Constabulary Acting Superintendent George Kakas added that the deceased were en route to attack a neighboring tribe when they were ambushed near Wabag. The death toll could increase as authorities say they're still retrieving the bodies. Police suspect that the injured who ran away from the clashes may have died from their injuries. At least 17 tribes have been involved in the escalating tribal conflict, pushing the provincial authorities to impose a months-long lockdown last year. Sunday's ambush is allegedly connected with the same tribes who were responsible for the clashes that killed over 60 in 2023. Since the 2022 elections in which Prime Minister James Marape was re-elected, tribal violence in the Enga province has increased, with local populations claiming that the vote was rigged in Marape's favor. Thanks, Eric, for that update. We have a Narrative A from The Guardian. As its highlands have long struggled with violence, internal security, more broadly, remains a key concern for PNG. However, the failure of the state to prevent the influx of illegal, high-powered firearms and ammunition into the region has exacerbated the conflict and made clashes deadlier. The latest ambush has renewed attention to Prime Minister Marape's incompetence in providing grassroots solutions. If he can't prevent massacres of unprecedented intensity, Marape should step down. ABC of Australia has Narrative B. Tribal violence isn't uncommon in PNG. However, police couldn't foresee it and had limited resources to deal with Sunday's massive ambush. In their quest for revenge killing and retribution, these tribes are breaking the law and creating instability. Marape's government is striving to curb the security issues and coordinating with community leaders to defuse tensions. Until the warring factions lay down their weapons, these long-held disputes will remain unresolved. Von der Leyen to seek a second term as European Commission head. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Guardian, Euronews, ERR, and DPA International. On Monday, during the Christian Democratic Union, or CDU's, party conference in Berlin, Ursula von der Leyen declared her intention to run for a second, five-year term as president of the European Commission. On Saturday, von der Leyen had indicated her decision at the Munich Security Conference, claiming that if she were to run again, she would emphasize increasing defense spending and appointing a defense commissioner. By declaring her candidacy, she will start a four-month election campaign that may include Estonia's prime minister, Kaya Kalas. Alongside support from the CDU, von der Leyen is also expected to receive the support of the European People's Party. After being chosen for the position in 2019, von der Leyen became the first female head of the 32,000-employee EU executive, leading the bloc through the COVID pandemic and the ongoing conflict in Ukraine while aspiring to make the EU climate neutral by 2050. EU leaders chose the Commission's presidency based on the results of the European elections, with the winning party holding the de facto convention of nominating the executive. Thank you, Scott, for presenting the facts. The round of spins begins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Associated Press. Ursula von der Leyen was unanimously chosen by the CDU to remain as the Executive Commission's candidate. This decision sends a strong message to Europe, as the European People's Party, or EPP, which is dominated by Christian Democrats, is anticipated to maintain its majority in the legislature following the European elections that take place in June. It's unlikely that any other candidate will be able to realistically challenge von der Leyen for the job. 
And we have an establishment critical narrative from Politico. Ursula von der Leyen was confirmed by the EU Parliament and selected by EU leaders in 2019, lacking any form of democratic legitimacy. In the upcoming election, the European people will once again not vote on the Commission's executive. Rather, the political party with the highest percentage of votes will choose the presidency. Von der Leyen's path to remain commissioner is a glaring illustration of the EU's democratic shortcomings. The Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. It says there's a 78% chance that the president of the European Commission will be affiliated with the EPP following the 2024 elections. The governor of Wisconsin signs the GOP redistricting map. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, Fox News, NBC, and Washington Post. Democratic Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers signed new legislative district maps drawn by the majority Republican legislature on Monday. Following over a decade of unchallenged Republican maps, the Democrats are now likely to gain more seats in the 2024 election. This comes after the election of the liberal state Supreme Court Justice Janet Brutazowicz in August flipped the balance of the bench and allowed the court to rule the Republicans' original maps unconstitutional. The court said it would draw the lines if no maps Evers would sign could be passed. The old maps had given Republicans 64 out of 99 seats in the state assembly and 22 out of 33 seats in the Senate. Following the 4-3 court ruling, however, the newly drawn maps are believed to split the party advantages evenly. The new maps will also pit 15 incumbent office holders against each other, including two Democrats in the Assembly as well as six in the Senate. The Senate would also see two already elected Democrats face each other, but one of them has already decided not to run for re-election. The maps only pertain to the state's legislature, not U.S. congressional districts, in which Republicans still hold a 6-2 majority. Well, thanks for that update, Eric. We have a Democratic narrative from ProPublica. The old Republican-drawn maps turned the state into a slice of Swiss cheese, carving out detached districts to ensure the GOP always won big. While the Republicans may still achieve a majority in the upcoming election, the state will look a lot more representative than in the past. Democrats should celebrate this historic win against gerrymandering and work hard to capitalize on the actual representative democracy the people have been asking for. Counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Wall Street Journal. Wisconsin's maps were deemed appropriate for years under the supervision of state courts and legislatures, as well as federal courts. It was only after Protasiewicz, who, in an unprecedented fashion, campaigned on ordering a redraw, was elected that their fairness was questioned. The sad irony here is that Wisconsin Democrats have just used court-ordered gerrymandering in their so-called fight against gerrymandering. And the establishment critical narrative from Center for American Progress. Both Democrats and Republicans gerrymander massively, making American democracy far from fair. Election laws should change. The PRC offers to deepen security and law enforcement with Hungary. Here are the facts. As agreed upon by U.S. News & World Report, The Kiev Independent, Novanite.com, The Guardian, Bloomberg News, and The Economist. China has reportedly offered Hungary deeper law enforcement and security ties including combating terrorism. This comes as the two nations honor 75 years of their diplomatic relationship. Chinese Public Security Minister Wang Xiaohong met Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban on February 16th and hoped to strengthen their coordination in international and regional affairs. Wang signed law enforcement and security cooperation deals with Hungary's Interior Minister Sandor Pinter, although their details have not been made public yet, according to Chinese state media. China's offer to Hungary, a NATO and EU member, is uncharacteristic and comes amid Budapest's growing discontent with the two major Western bodies. 
Hungary was the first EU country to join China's ambitious Belt and Road Initiative, opening the doors for massive investments by Beijing in the Central European nation. Budapest has also warmed diplomatic relations with Moscow, exacerbating tensions within the EU. In 2023, Orban blocked a $540 million EU financial aid package to Ukraine, saying there was no chance Kyiv would emerge victorious against Russia. Scott, thanks for the facts. The establishment critical narrative is the first spin for this story. It comes from Xinhua. Hungary and China are showing the world how a bilateral relationship based on trust and mutual respect can be beneficial to both the parties involved. China's offer now to further deepen their strategic ties indicates that the two nations' warming is gaining steam. Together, the leaders of the two nations are shaping a comprehensive partnership that will be a truly multipolar model for the world to follow. And The Diplomat brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Hungary's eastern opening policy, which has led to its newfound love for China, could be leading the country towards disaster. This also endangers the EU by giving Beijing a dangerous foothold in Europe. Frequently criticized for his authoritarian tendencies, Orban has found a willing partner in China. While Beijing may be keen on using Hungary's key position in the EU to swing matters in a concerning geopolitical direction on the world stage. And the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 15% chance that Hungary will leave the EU by 2030. Israel warns of Rafah assault by Ramadan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Reuters, Wall Street Journal, and Al Jazeera. Israel has warned that if Hamas doesn't release Israeli hostages by March 10th, the beginning of the Islamic holy month of Ramadan, then it will invade the southern Gazan city of Rafah. Foreign Minister Benny Gantz said Gaza can, quote, celebrate Ramadan if Hamas surrenders and releases the abductees. This follows Defense Minister Yoav Gallant's statement that military was already preparing to target the city of one million people, which is also currently housing upwards of 1.3 million displaced Palestinians. While Israel hasn't offered specific plans, one defense official said they would have to screen each civilian before sending them north to tent cities. Another said they could make a floating jetty to import humanitarian aid. While U.S. President Joe Biden has called on Israel to make a plan before entering Rafah, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu over the weekend said he would allow civilians to evacuate to, quote, safe areas. Netanyahu also suggested, quote, there is a lot of space north of Rafah. Meanwhile, Gantz over the weekend said Israel also plans to restrict access to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem which is home to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. While Hamas called the decision proof of Israel's intention to escalate its aggression, Netanyahu's office said Monday it would allow freedom of worship within the limits of security needs. Elsewhere, Israel said it, quote, attacked weapons depots near Sidon in southern Lebanon after locating an unmanned aerial vehicle from Hezbollah near Tiberias. Lebanese media reported that the Israel strikes consisted of several airstrikes. Since Hamas's October 7th attack that killed around 1,200 Israelis with 130 taken as hostages, Gazan health officials say that over 29,000 Palestinians have been killed in the resulting counter-assault as of Monday. All right, thanks for those sad facts, Eric. We have a pro-Palestine narrative from Al Jazeera. What Israel is currently doing to Palestine is nothing new. Going back to Israel's ethnic cleansing of Palestinians during the 1948 Nakba, Israel's goal has always been to displace and kill civilians through starvation and military assaults to achieve its goal of complete dominance over the region. Based on historical precedent, there's a tremendous concern for Rafah if Israel isn't told to stop. The pro-Israel narrative comes from Jerusalem Post. As far as historical precedent is concerned, 
Hamas has a long history of luring mass groups of Palestinians into tightly packed cities, this time Rafah, so that it can later blame Israel when civilians die in the crossfire. Both Israel and the Palestinian Authority have called for a ceasefire in exchange for a hostage release. But Hamas is hindering these efforts through its continued attacks and flagrant use of human shields. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 59% chance that Israel will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. Russia intensifies their attacks as Ukraine suffers ammo shortages. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Institute for the Study of War, The Guardian, and Ukranska Pravda. Following the fall of the Donetsk city of Avdivka to Russian troops over the weekend, Russian forces have launched multiple attacks to the west of the city in an effort to secure further battlefield gains. Russian forces have also intensified their efforts in numerous areas across the front line, according to the latest update from Ukraine's armed forces. In addition to the Avdivka front, Monday's statement said, Russian forces had escalated attacks near Bakhmut, Marinka, and Lyman elsewhere in Donetsk, as well as in the regions of Zaporizhia, Kharkiv, and Kherson. The latest analysis from the Institute for the Study of War, a U.S. military think tank that tracks battlefield progress in this conflict, said that in launching these attacks, Russia is likely exploiting Ukraine's ammunition shortages, namely in artillery munitions and missile defense rockets created by delays in Western military aid. The ISW said delays in Western security assistance to Ukraine are likely helping Russia launch opportunistic offensive operations along several sectors of the front line in order to place pressure on Ukrainian forces along multiple axes. The analysis also noted that Russia is likely seeking to take advantage of ground conditions before Ukraine's coming Rasputitsa season, when the spring weather thaws the ice, making terrain muddy and complicating ground operations. The Guardian will lead the round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative. The passage of a $60 billion military aid package for Ukraine is a positive step towards addressing the issue of Kyiv's ammunition shortages. But it's just as important that European countries plug their own spending gaps and elevate their aid commitments. If Ukraine continues to fall short of ammunition and key supplies, it will face a slow-motion defeat on the battlefield that would spell disaster for the risk of future Russian expansionism against NATO. And TASS brings us the pro-Russian narrative. Following the avoidable loss of Ukrainian territory and men throughout this conflict, Ukraine's counteroffensive has now clearly failed. Committing further funding to arms will simply bring about more death and destruction. Ukraine would never have attempted to fight this war against Russia without U.S. and EU weapons. Now that its support is running dry, Ukraine must accept the reality that Russia will never cease its defense of the Donbass or Crimea. A nerd narrative says there's a 21% chance that Russia will have significantly expanded its controlled territory in Ukraine by January 1st, 2026. That comes from Metaculus. The U.S. strikes more targets in Yemen, including an underwater drone. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, WION, New York Times, Voice of America, and Politico. The U.S. said it launched five airstrikes on Houthi-controlled territory in Yemen over the weekend, targeting three mobile cruise missiles, one unmanned surface vessel, and an unmanned underwater vehicle. On Sunday, the U.S. Central Command claimed that the weapons posed an imminent threat to U.S. Navy ships and commercial vessels in the region. It also said it was the first time the Iran-aligned Houthis deployed an unmanned underwater vehicle since their Red Sea attacks began. According to the U.S. military, the airstrikes against Houthi targets served to protect freedom of navigation on one of the world's key sea routes. 
On Friday, the U.S. Department of State announced that a Panama-flagged oil tanker was hit by a missile in the Red Sea. Also on Friday, the U.S. government formally relabeled the Houthis a specially designated global terrorist group after Washington announced the decision last month. The move reportedly gives the U.S. additional means to block the Iran-backed Houthis' access to the global financial system. This comes as the State Department alleged that Iran was, quote, deeply involved in planning the Houthis' operation in the Red Sea. Washington claims the rebels are using Iranian-made missiles and unmanned aerial systems against military and civilian targets in the region. Meanwhile, the Houthis reportedly caused heavy damage to a Lebanese-operated Belize-flagged British cargo ship Sunday as it passed through the Bab el-Mandeb Strait. The Houthis also claimed they shot down an American drone close to the Yemeni city of al-Hudaida. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Iran International. While the Houthis claim that their operations are only directed against Israeli-linked commercial vessels, their attacks have disrupted maritime trade. Moreover, the Yemeni terrorists are being supported on the ground with weapons and intelligence by Tehran in its asymmetric war against Israel in violation of international law. Should Iran continue with its destabilizing and threatening tactics, the U.S. must also consider direct strikes against the regime. Al-Mayadeen has an establishment-critical narrative. Even the latest illegal aggression against Yemen will not deter the Houthis from continuing to attack the Israeli regime's maritime supply line. The U.S. is deliberately causing the escalation in the Red Sea to distract from its direct support of Israel in its cruel campaign against the people of Gaza. However, Washington's calculation is not working out and instead represents a strategic blunder that only reinforces the regional isolation of the U.S. and Israel. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 13% chance that the U.S. and Iran will be primary actors on opposite sides of a war before the year 2025. Concerns mount over offshore marine life in Argentina. Here are the facts. As agreed upon by The Guardian, La Nación, The Rio Times, and Dialogo Americas. Politicians and environmentalists from the Falkland Islands have recently raised concerns over resource exploitation in the rich and biodiverse disputed ocean waters known as the Blue Hole, just off the coast of Argentina. The boundary that stretches 200 miles or 321 kilometers from shore, designating Argentina's Exclusive Economic Zone, or EEZ, bisects the Blue Hole. The eastern side lies in international waters and is unregulated. Argentine and foreign vessels harvest this area for its rich marine life. The geopolitical stalemate between Argentina and the UK over the Falkland Islands has further delayed regulation of overfishing. Alex Reed, a squid fishing fleet manager, said the political discord has left the Blue Hole vulnerable and a free-for-all for international fleets. Marine life migrates from the Argentine EEZ to the east for feeding and reproduction. Fishing fleets often wait for the migration to cross into international waters to catch unmeasurable quantities of fish and other ocean creatures. The most sought-after species is the Ilex squid. An estimated 150,000 are caught legally by Argentine vessels, and an additional 600 to 800,000 are caught illegally annually in the Southwest Atlantic Ocean. Fishing operations offshore of Argentina include floating cities, of up to 600 ships. 80% of these are identified as originating from the PRC, who complete extended stays in the region and often have their fuel costs reimbursed by Beijing. Thanks, Scott. The first spin is Narrative A coming from CNN. In March 2023, the UN was successful in getting nearly 200 countries to agree to and sign a global high seas treaty. 
The treaty is meant to provide legal tools to enforce laws and regulations applied to marine fisheries and protected areas against mining, overfishing, and other activities that could deplete the rich biodiversity of the oceans. This is a huge win in preserving oceans and protecting marine life and must be enforced in areas like offshore Argentina. Narrative B comes from CBS. Despite the signing of the High Seas Treaty, it's very unlikely that such a robust regulation mechanism will be ratified. The treaty must be ratified by 60 countries before implementation can occur. Countries like Russia stand in the way of ratification because, while not blocking the signing, Moscow has clearly stated that it finds the treaty to be unacceptable. Without major nations signing on, there's little hope that others will follow suit and areas like the Blue Hole will be in peril. Okay, the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 53% chance that the Billion Oyster Project will restore or 1 billion oysters to New York Harbor before 2035. Trump launches a $400 sneaker line. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, The Guardian, New York Times, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, and Daily Wire. Former U.S. President Donald Trump made a surprise appearance at SneakerCon in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on Saturday, during which he unveiled the limited edition Never Surrender High Tops for $3.99 per pair. The website selling the shoes, which the Trump campaign says is not connected to them, also posted Victory 47 cologne and perfume for $99 per bottle, a reference to Trump becoming the 47th president if he were to win re-election. While the website GetTrumpSneakers.com says it's not political and has nothing to do with any political campaign, the company is using Trump's brand through a licensing agreement, which could likely mean Trump's receiving a revenue cut. While the 1,000 limited edition high tops were reportedly sold out within two hours of being posted on the website, at least 10 of which Trump will autograph, the website still hosts low top sneakers and two others called POTUS 45 and T-Red Wave, each for $99. During Trump's roughly five-minute address to the sneaker convention crowd, which was met with both cheers and boos. The current 2024 GOP frontrunner said the shoe brand was, quote, something I've been talking about for 12, 15 years. The sneaker announcement followed multiple legal losses for Trump, including a New York judge ordering him to pay over $350 million in his civil fraud case, as well as the recent $83 million ruling against Trump in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have a anti-Trump narrative from the New York Times. Proven by the licensing address of this shoe manufacturer being the same one as his golf resorts, Donald Trump is tied financially to the sale of these shoes. However, despite his efforts to pretend that this isn't a scheme to bring in income after losing yet another multi-million dollar lawsuit, the only result of this cynical stunt is the continued trivialization of his legal losses. The pro-Trump narrative comes from human events. Donald Trump has never lost his supporters because he does what old-fashioned Republicans would never do, not give up. As Democrats seek to win by trying to put their primary political opponent in jail, Trump continues to meet regular Americans where they are and and provide to them about what they care about. Donald Trump isn't the one trivializing the weaponized justice system. He's the one poking fun at its institutional rot. And here's another nerd narrative. There's a 51% chance that Trump would win a 2024 presidential election matchup with Biden, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. And I like nice sneakers as much as the next guy isn't. I mean, this seems like a, a logical place for Trump to be, that sneaker space. A lot of it's, you know, branding over substance, Pied Piper stuff. And maybe they're good sneakers. I don't know. So we know at least a thousand people are going to know what it's like to walk in his shoes. Oh, 
Our final story, the NBA All-Star Game breaches a historic scoring milestone. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ESPN, USA Today, Fox News, CNN, and the Associated Press. The NBA All-Star Game saw the first team in league history to score 200 or more points in a single game as the Eastern Conference took down the Western Conference in Sunday's battle. The typically high-scoring event ended with the East winning 211-186 to and Damian Lillard of the Milwaukee Bucks taking home the game's Most Valuable Player Award. NBA All-Star, which also features events such as the Rising Stars Game, Slam Dunk Contest, and the Celebrity All-Star Game, took place in Indianapolis. The hometown crowd was upset when Lillard won MVP over the Pacers' Tyrese Halliburton, who scored 32 points compared to Lillard's 39. In addition to setting the record for points in a game, the Eastern Conference squad set the record for most three-pointers attempted in a game, 97, while both squads combined for a record 66 made threes and 168 attempted. The wild scoring exhibition has long been criticized for a lack of competition and defense, and NBA Commissioner Adam Silver went on record saying that he wants to restore the importance and competitiveness of the contest. Thanks, Scott. The first spin is Narrative A coming from CBS. For many years, the NBA All-Star Game has been essentially unwatchable. But Sunday's debacle took the event to a new level with an absurd 97 three-pointers attempted. It's clear that none of the players care one iota about the game. Careening through the historic 200-point barrier is unacceptable. Adam Silver has tried many different twists to reignite the exhibition game, but after this performance, this event can't be saved. NBA.com brings us Narrative B. Amid the controversy, the NBA All-Star Game saw history be made, and the exhibition was filled with highlights and fascinating moments. Obviously, the game doesn't have the same fire as a normal game, but the beauty of the All-Star Game is showcasing the league's brightest stars all on one stage. At the end of the day, a historic record fell, and All-Star Weekend is all about fun, and this contest is filled with it. Our final nerd narrative says there's a 50% chance that Wilt Chamberlain's single-game NBA scoring record will be broken before at least January 1st, 2050. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers to figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news. You can download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.